0: (laughs) You may be surprised that on some of the reminder notices, there are some odd images um, that uh, I've chosen. And I want to um, let you know that I spend a good bit of time thinking and considering about how to transmit these teachings to Americans, to Westerners. And a lot of the imagery, which may seem a little odd to you, um, is certainly uh, different from the traditional Buddhist iconographic images, which are beautiful. I love to see images of the Buddha and of the history of Buddhism. Uh, And however, my my um, intention is to to discover how to do what Buddhism does so brilliantly, and that is to adapt to the culture and to serve the culture in which it lands. And so many of our Japanese masters and mistresses have passed on um, and a lot of the American Western Dharma teachers are figuring out what what is an American Zen? Uh, What what does that look like? And um, so that's one of the the reasons you're seeing some unusual (laughs) imagery and perhaps even uh, language uh and i hope it isn't offensive to anyone who is a classical buddhist <laughs> scholar and, you know. um, but here in america you know we're imaginative celebratory of diversity um uh creative uh and uh iconoclastic so we we like to break rules so um this is the spirit in which uh, I, I, I want to let you know that um, there's a reason behind some of these, uh, this, this imagery and these, um, these titles for some of these talks. Um, we are uh, discussing precepts. And lately, the, some of our Sangha members have expressed some struggles, uh, financial struggles. And I, I like to be responsive to the struggles of our Sangha, while at the same time honoring the tradition and the teachings. Um, I'm sure money and wealth and resources have been over millennia an issue for the human race. Um, and in considering the struggles that our, song, some of our Sangha members, and maybe more than I even know, are struggling with money. And I think most of my life I've struggled with money, having come from a very poor family. And so money was at the center of their lives. And it's not something we talk about uh, or investigate very deeply. And maybe we're a little embarrassed by the fact that we think so much about money and that we're so reluctant to let go of it, that we're so attached to it. And so I, I was considering in this, Ross had introduced a very a wonderful way of approaching the precepts. And certainly they're not to be taken as rules. That is for sure. There is a whole set of what's called Vinaya, which are rules and they're rules for monastic living for the most part. But precepts are not rules and they're not things to be broken. (laughs) Um, Quite the contrary. Uh, uh, The question that Ross introduced at one point was, um, what precepts arise when I'm confronted with a particular problem or, or experience? It's not what precept should I obey in this context, but what precept is arising here for me? And I think that's a that's been very helpful to me to uh, look at it that way. Um, And to understand that the precepts are really opportunities for us to examine our life. So, okay, um, uh, I think we talked about gossip at one point. Um, You know, I find myself gossiping a lot. Well, what precept comes up with that you know praise and blame Mm -hmm. okay well this is a this is a an opportunity for me to investigate (laughs) Uh, praise and blame Uh, it's it's an opportunity to investigate the way I judge people so it's much more in the spirit of exploration and investigation than it is of obligation or should you should not do this you should not that so that is the spirit that I want to continue to remind ourselves about uh, because we need to where we live in a culture of yeah praise and blame (laughs) in which you know you break a precept bad bad you're bad you're evil or you know you you generous and kind and compassionate oh you're a great you're a great person. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even there, the precepts, (laughs) you know, are engaged in the way we treat the precepts. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that I think we can say about Buddha's uh, development of the precepts is that the precepts always have to do with relationships. The precepts arise in our relationships with one another, with other beings, with the earth, relationships. And his original uh, development of precepts had to do with creating harmony in the Sangha. And that is one of the foundations For the precepts that they are opportunities to create greater harmony in our relationships with one another in our relationship with ourselves and in relation to all beings and the natural world so it's all about sangha it's all about I mean, lying, stealing, uh, intoxicants, uh, you know, praise and blame, anger, all of these precepts have in, are engaged when we are in relation to other beings and to ourselves. So I, there's no precept on money, yeah. <laughs> um, not any, in any obvious way. And so I I had to consider what precept arises when we're struggling with money, when we're preoccupied with money. And the one that arose for me was the precept of killing. Mm. It doesn't seem that obvious, right? But I, I thought, well, This somehow somehow is about destruction uh, or taking the life out of things because killing has many forms. And I think as as you practice with the precepts, as you become more intimate with them, you begin seeing more and more deeply into what killing may, may mean. In fact, if you you really investigated deeply, you'll find that money, that all the precepts arise in relation to money. But today I'm going to focus on the precept of no harm, no killing. Buddha had nothing against wealth and money and resources. In fact, he, he came from a very, very wealthy family. And he he lived a life that some of us dream about. You know, every pleasure imaginable, lived in a palace and nothing, nothing to worry about. Uh, every need, every desire, every fantasy was taken care of. And yet he felt impelled to leave. So that's one of the questions. And and this talk today is going to be a a bit um, scattershot. There's gonna be thoughts. It's not gonna be terribly coherent. So don't look for any particular coherence today. (laughs) Um, So one of the questions is, you know, what motivated him to leave? Um, In our loving kindness Sutra we recited today, It mentions the burden of riches. Do not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Do not desire great possessions even for one's family. It's kind of curious. Somehow there is an element in money, in riches, in wealth that is a burden. And we need we explore that. You know, what, what does that what does that mean? Did Buddha feel the burden of his life in the palace? Felt that there was something about that was missing that he wasn't engaged in, that he needed to explore, that he needed to find, that he needed to go on a search, that this somehow, all of this stuff. Wasn't enough. It was everything anybody could want. And yet, and he was even promised the rule, becoming a ruler of the king. He was promised to become a king. He was the son of a king and he could have inherited not only wealth, but power and fame the three most wonderful Mm -hmm. things that we can (laughs) desire wealth, power, fame. Sort of corollaries to the three poisons <laughs> of greed, anger and delusion. But that's for another talk. <laughs> so I considered what what it was about money that was to be be vigilant about, to be concerned about, to regard perhaps as dangerous and something to um, be very careful about. It's not that wealth itself is not to be desired, because in in some Buddhist traditions, wealth is a sign of good karma, is, is a sign that you've been blessed, that, that you've, you've lived well and that you're, you're blessed with these resources. So wealth itself is not the issue. What is the issue is how it's, how it's gained <laughs> and how it's used. And that's, that's where the killing aspect comes in. One aspect of of gaining wealth and making money is right livelihood. So how are you making your money? Are you making your money through exploitation through killing in some indirect way? I mean, you're we're not uh, mafia members who are actually going out and killing people for for money. But, most of us eat meat, or some of us do, and there's killing involved in that. So again, it's an opportunity to examine uh, right livelihood. How are we making our money? And what, what professions, what livelihoods are, are, are not involved with destruction with taking life. And then the question becomes, we have, we've made this money, we have this money. How do we use it? What do we do with the money? And we're not uh, exempt, any of us, from being embedded in a capitalist culture. I'm not sure what Buddha would say Mm. about capitalism because in capitalism, and again, I'm just putting these ideas out, claiming to be right about it. It seems that the, the purpose is to achieve capital, with, and that capital makes more capital. So you have money, and then you regard that money as capital and you invest it in making more money. That's pretty much, I think, what capitalism <laughs> amounts to. It's the making of more money through making money. Mm-hmm. So one of the aspects of money in our culture is that we amass it, we accumulate it, and I think from a Buddhist perspective, the best use of money is not accumulation, but circulation. So, in the spirit of precepts and paramitas, it's wonderful to be wealthy. Why? Because you can be generous. (laughs) Mm. Being wealthy permits you to be generous. And what a wonderful perfection that is. I'm not sure that that's a capitalist perfection, but it is a Buddhist perfection. And so, in a a sense, I sometimes talk about Indian giving, which has been deeply misunderstood. Mm. And this is early American, Native American tradition. This is not capitalism. This is Native American tradition about economy, about resources. That Indian giving in our culture has come to mean: you give something to somebody, and then you take it away. <laughs> you want it back, right? That's how we usually understand Indian giving. Oh, you're an Indian giver. You gave me something, and now you, you you're asking for it in you know for you, for me to give it back to you. That's not Indian giving at all. Indian giving is about Accepting a gift, accepting something, and passing it on, not giving it back to the person who gave it to you, but to give it to some other situation, <laughs> to some other person. It's like passing the peace pipe. You know? So, in Native American tradition, the point is that nothing becomes capital. Mm-hmm. You don't possess it. Right? You don't own it. And that's very Buddhist. You do not own anything. And how do you show that? You give it away. (laughs) You know, you pass it on. You pass it on through generosity. So what happens How does killing enter the picture here? One one way, it's just occurring to me, if you accept something and it becomes capital, you own it, in a way it it dies. Mm. You know, it it just becomes a thing that, okay, now what do I do with it? (laughs) You know, invest it to get another thing, to get more of that, thing that just sits there in a bank or I don't know online. (laughs) You know, now it's money is is just in computers. So it's like dead. It's not, it's not doing anything. So it's it's a form of taking real things and kill and killing them, just making them abstract, making them numbers, making them things you own. But you know, the, um, the uh, myth of Midas, mm-hmm. he, he was a king. He had also everything, <laughs> pretty much, and he had this wish that everything that he would touch would turn to gold. Mm-hmm. It's called the Midas touch. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what that would be like? and he 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 got his wish was granted and everything he touched was turned to gold including his wife his children as soon as he touched anything it it basically died it just became you know an object and so This to me is, is in a sense, a form of killing. Instead of connecting with the life of something, you see it as a commodity. It's just something to be used. Um, It's something to be measured. It's something to accumulate. and even we talk about selling ourselves, <laughs> you know, when you go out for a job interview, mm-hmm. you know, how do I sell myself? And and often we, s- it's just like you're a thing. You're not a alive thing. Or people look at objects like a car. Well, that's a Mercedes. We, we don't see the car. we see the status. We see, the car is dead. <laughs> it's, it's the symbol of wealth. It's no longer that. It's no longer a live thing. And suddenly, the whole world becomes commodified, including people. It's like, "How can this person help me?" <laughs> you know how?" Or what can I get from this person? How can they benefit me? It's like, we're going around with price tags on us, (laughs) you know? We even say, well, how much is that person worth? Right, well, that person's worth a million dollars or that piece of land, like we talked about farmland yesterday. It's it's just, it's not land, 6 million dollars you know <laughs> and so suddenly everything begins to die because it just becomes a thing that has a price tag on it including people so this is a this is a an invitation t- to us to examine the role of money in our lives. What does it mean to you? How does it, how does, how is it a burden? How is it an opportunity? How, how for example, um, another Sangha member who has uh, moved, uh, he was from uh, uh, Iran And in the Muslim tradition, they have uh, a um, a duality they call Haram and Halal. And he and his wife had just come from Iran and they decided they had to go to Las Vegas because that was like the the epitome of America. (laughs) This is kind of an interesting idea that, that from their perspective, Las Vegas. Did you did you go to Las Vegas? I'm not sure. Somebody somebody else in the Sangha did, but but you know that that kind of um, dramatic glitz and you know gambling and the and all of the wealth that is um, gaudy gaudily displayed. Um, this this is America. This is what our you know what our culture. Uh, is exemplified by. And so they went and they they did some gambling. And they won a lot of money by almost by accident. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't know what they were doing. But they won a lot of money. And they told me that they began to feel the burden of that money that they didn't earn. Mm -hmm. And that was that they got at the expense of all the other people who were losing money, <laughs> and they felt terrible. They felt that this was this was burdensome to them, and so they gave it to charity. Um, they they it was like the what do you do with that burden? You give it away. You give it away. It's not again something that. Culturally, oh, I just won a couple thousand dollars. I didn't even have to do anything. That's the profit motive. To do as little as you can for as much as you can. It's not Buddhist. It's not not the Buddhist way. (laughs) Quite the contrary. But it is our culture. We are motivated by profit. And... Most of us, I suspect, in some deep way, because we're children of our culture, have a Midas wish. Something to think about, to work with. Please return your cushions to their places. (laughs)